0: I hope you're ready to learn. You guys ready to learn this morning? Grow closer to Jesus and see his goodness and how his word is always a better word. That's what we're going to see this morning. We're working our way through the characters, the law, the institutions, and the miracles. And there are lots of miracles, right? After the Exodus. From Exodus 14, chapter 14 through chapter 40, to the end of the book of Exodus, uh, to demonstrate that wherever you open the Bible, this Bible, the one you're opening right now, you can see a key piece of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thus, every part of the Bible is life-givingly, life-transformingly relevant to you. Because it has the words of eternal life in all of it. We summarized the gospel last week. I'll do it again here in four pieces. A, God only saves individuals through Jesus Christ, to make them into a people who join with him in building an everlasting kingdom. And so last week, we looked at God only saves individuals. And the next gospel piece, which is this morning, is God saves through the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that today in the book of Exodus. Not only will we see Jesus in Exodus today... And you're wondering, where did I see Jesus? I don't remember. Did he pop up? Did he make a quick cameo? He did. Not only will we see him today, but we'll return again as our main subject in three weeks. Because it turns out that God's leaders, whether they be prophets, whether they be priests, whether they be kings, all foreshadow Jesus as a type of Christ, a type of anointed one. So three weeks we're going to see such a priest. Today we're going to get to know a prophet who is a type of Christ. And I say you get to know because we already have met him. In fact, every type of salvation we encountered last week was mediated by the prophet Moses. So for instance, the people you might remember grumbled to Moses for water and for bread. And then Moses grumbled to who? To God. We saw God offered an emissary, an angel, to go with his people up to the promised land. The final act of salvation, victory. But Moses, on behalf of the people, pleaded that God himself go with them. Not just an angel, but that God make his presence go with them. But the first and most famous act of salvation is when the great I am, the I am who I am, Yahweh, parts a sea so that people can cross from death to life. What I didn't do last week is call our attention how the Bible summarizes this great act of salvation. Here it is, Exodus 14, verse 31. So the people feared Yahweh, and they believed Yahweh, or believed God, and his servant Moses. Listen to that again. They believed God and his servant Moses. Now that's the messianic language right there. Not only God, but this, this servant. Why would they believe in someone who's not God? Because Moses is a type of Christ. From this point forward, Moses takes on the role of prophetic mediator between God and the people. He takes the words of the people and he speaks them to God. He takes the words of God and he speaks them to the people. His role as a go-between points to the one who will do this better and forever, and that is Jesus. He's going to go between us and Yahweh even better and forever. It's beautiful. But before we turn back the clock to Jesus and then to Moses and then to Yahweh and, you know, eternity past, what does all this have to do with 21st century us? Why should this matter to modern people such as ourselves? It matters for every person who's ever desired to hear from God. Every person whether you feel flat out lost, fed up with the direction of your life, or you're presented with two really good options, in each case wondering where next you can turn. It matters to all such people. Maybe, maybe the God of your journey has grown distant and unfamiliar, and it, man, it sure would be nice to hear from God again. To, to, to hear again that he's still there for you. It matters for all such people. Perhaps you've never believed in God, but you've been impressed with the faith of someone whose life you respect, and so you're here this morning, having even secretly asked God to talk to you, and so show himself to you, then this matters to you, hearing from God. In his own movie, movie called Sleeper, you probably haven't seen it because it's, it's 1970s, but maybe you have, I'm speaking to the majority of our audience, Woody Allen uh, wakes up from a cryogenic freeze, all right, which we all know is true, right? (laughs) You can can get frozen and wake up thousands of years later and just be yourself. But he wakes up from this cryogenic freeze, and he uses old photos that he has with him to show people 200 years later what life was like for him. So he shows them old pictures of former U.S. President Richard Nixon, a guy named Norman Mailer, and finally, he gets to this evangelist, and he says, and Billy Graham, well, he claimed to know God personally, and at that point, the audience laughs, ha, 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 yeah, right. And it's absurd, know God personally, because of our experience. No one has ever seen God, and many of us have personally sensed the void of God's absence. But it's also absurd in a way I'm pretty sure Woody Allen didn't mean. We should laugh at the idea of personally knowing God for another reason, if you start with an accurate picture of who God is and a sober assessment of who you are, then it's absurd to want the great I am, the consuming fire, to interact and speak with us directly. If you know who God is, and you know who you are, and you're pretty sure he knows who you are, then it's absurd to think, man, I want this God to get to know me to speak to me directly, this holy, this awesome, this consuming fire, God. So this morning, we're going to scour the pages. We're going to scour through the pages after the Exodus for the voice of God. We're going to hear that Yahweh speaks, Moses speaks, and Jesus speaks. Yahweh speaks an awful word. Moses speaks a necessary word, and Jesus speaks a better word. So first, Yahweh speaks, and we cannot bear it. Yahweh speaks, and we cannot bear it. Yahweh's wilderness people in the 13th century B.C., had an accurate picture of God and a sober assessment of themselves. And so they did not wish to hear from God. And God warned them, don't come near me. Wait a minute. That sounds so different than the God maybe you've heard of. That sounds so different from the God who is to be loved, the gentleman of heaven, heaven's sweetheart, that God. But let's listen over here in Exodus 19, verse 17. Listen to the accounts preceding and following the giving of the Ten Commandments, all right? First of all, chapter 19, starting in verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, all right? God, the people, people, God. All right, here comes the introductions. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Okay, kind of an intimidating introduction so far, right? The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly so you got earthquakes fire smoke so far and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder Moses spoke and the Lord answered him in thunder the Lord came down on mount sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses go down and warn the people lest they break through To me, to look and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but basically nobody else, but do not let the priests, the people break through. To come up to the Lord, lest, again, he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. Then we get the Ten Commandments, which is going to get its own sermon next week. All right, then skip ahead to chapter 20, verse 22. Or excuse me, verse 18. Chapter 20, verse 18. And when all the people saw the thunder, here we go again with thunder, flashes of lightning, sound of the trumpet, mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far away. And they said to Moses, you can imagine them shouting this to Moses, hey Moses, we're way over here now, we just want to tell you this, please, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood still far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Here we go, God's word. We see here the tension, don't we? There's this tension. I hope you sensed it between the holiness, the otherness of God, and love, a tender love. A wanting to be near enough, but not so near that he will consume them. There's this tension of wanting to relate to his people, but also recognizing those people are sinful. It's summarized beautifully, isn't it? In chapter 20, verse 20. Look at that again. Do not fear. Hey guys, do not fear. So that, Fear may be before you. It's like, well, wait a minute. Which is it? There's this tension in God himself. First, we see that Yahweh speaks an awful word, an awful word, right? And that's what that word literally means. We've come to think of it as only bad, but it also means great and potentially terrible. An awful word. The trumpet or shofar call comes straight from God, but not to summon his people as it normally came. All the people come, but notice Yahweh only answers Moses. He only then calls Moses. He only then lets Moses go up to the mountaintop to hear from him. The first thing that God wants to say to Moses is, hey, look, man, warn the people against approaching me. Now what have we heard so far from such people? We've heard them grumble, we've heard them doubt, we've heard them stubbornly disagree with God, all of which is evidence of the big no in our heart towards God called sin. It's that I want to lead my own life. I want to do things my way. I believe my way is better than your way. That is sin in a nutshell. So God here and saying, don't let the people come close to me, is he's not being grumpy. He's not also giving an I told you so like, see, I told you, you were stubborn. This is going to happen. That's not God's attitude towards his people. His very person, guys, cannot tolerate sin. It cannot tolerate imperfection. It cannot tolerate rebellion. It's like wood getting too close to a fire, right? When we were kids, we shot bottle rockets away from our wooden house. Why? Because we knew we were rebellious, but we're not going to do it near the house, right? Fire and timber. That's why when we bought our first home, Katie and I did, also a wooden home, we put the fire pit to roast marshmallows and that sort of thing 75 feet away. Seventy feet away because if one ember, right, touched one splinter on our home, whoosh, the whole structure could be consumed. Like that 75-foot barrier which people advised us to erect, God says, set limits around this mountain because if fire and thunder and lightning meets the weakness of timber, the earthen vessel, whoosh, like that. So he must justly consume sin because it can't be near his person. But he can't do so without also consuming us. And that's a problem. We can't be near us because sin has infected every part of us. It's not as if we can say, but God, love this part of me. It's good. It's affected our hands. It's affected our our sight, our smell, our minds, our heart, our motives, our thoughts, our intentions. Every part of who we are. God is warning his people here, now, 13th, 12th century, through the doctrine of wrath. Which, by the way, not ranked as the most popular doctrine in the church, all right? I don't know how many of you guys have thought to yourself, man, I'm, going, I'm excited to go to church today. I'm getting in the car. I'm, I, man, I hope today pastor preaches on the doctrine of wrath. <laughs> Just bring it. I want to hear something like that. Consuming fire, potential death. It's not popular. There's one writer I read this week, very humorously put it. I want to share this with you guys. Most preachers today treat the biblical doctrine of wrath very much as the Victorians treated sex. It's there but must never be talked about because it is in some undefined way shameful. We don't talk about it. We we, we don't acknowledge that it's happening. We don't acknowledge that it's real. And still today, we do that with wrath, the just wrath of God. Wrath is shameful because I think for us, we think of it in the same way. We think of human anger because of our experience and how we use human anger. Right? As payback when someone doesn't treat us how we feel we deserve to be treated. So what do we sometimes give them? It boils up. We give them wrath. We, get it, we use anger as a tool to get our own way. Sometimes it happens in friendships or marriages. You bring out the wrath so you know that person just wants peace so they'll back down. Or we use a disproportionate, inconsistent quantity of wrath as punishment our kids, right? So our kids are always wondering, oh, what, like, when's the outburst coming? And, and, and they learn to hate that. But that is not God's wrath. One of my favorite theologians, a guy named John Stott, a great pastor as well, who passed away a couple years ago, said it this way. He says, God's wrath does not mean that he's likely to fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation, right, provoking, still less that he loses his temper for no apparent reason at all. And that's how we experience anger, right? For there is nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God. He's not irascible or malicious, spiteful or vindictive. His anger is neither mysterious or irrational. It's never predictable, but always predictable, because it's always provoked by evil and evil alone. God's anger, his wrath, it's a settled, consistent, predictable wrath. You know what he's going to get mad at. It's not, a, it's not a bad temper. It's the fact that his person cannot be around sin. And in many ways, you know that's good for us because there are some seriously sinful people that we know have hurt people incredibly badly their entire lives intentionally, maliciously, pervertedly. Should God just tolerate them in heaven? We he would say, no, of course not. Consider God dished out nine plagues over the series, each over the series of weeks, prior to consuming a human being in the book of Exodus. Not only did mercy then precede wrath, but it was predictable, as Stott says. God through Moses warned Pharaoh over and over. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen if you don't let us go to the desert and worship. Here's what's going to happen. Sixth time, seventh time, eighth time, ninth time. It's predictable. When God does speak and execute that last plague, oh boy, it is no doubt awful. That's why some of these movies about Exodus are so helpful. Yes, they have some unbiblical parts. But if you saw the recent movie, Gods and Kings, there's these couple moments in there where Pharaoh like, Pharaoh, turns to Moses and he says, what kind of a God do you worship? As he's holding his dead first son in his hand. And Moses can't even say anything. But the people all walk away like, Whoa, that really happened. So why then doesn't God break out against people today? Where is his wrath gone? Guys, it is alive and kicking. It just, God just applies it a bit differently. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us about God's modern application of wrath in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, then I'm going to skip to 24 through 28. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, he's saying wrath of God, it's revealed against people who say, I don't want to have anything to do with you, God. I know you exist. I'm going to live life my own way. He goes on to say in verse 24, therefore, as people continue to sin, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. I'm going to skip down for time's sake to verse 46. That's the first stage of wrath. The second stage, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That's the second stage of wrath. Third stage. Finally, God gave them up just to a twisted and debased mind. So, how might this apply to you or me? Let's ask ourselves the following based here on Romans 1. Number one, do I consistently over-pursue the good gifts of God, the natural gifts of God, my job, my money, my friends, sex? Do I consistently over-pursue those things, over-want, over-desire those things of my life? those idols we erect, a good thing, a good gift, but we make it into an unnatural thing by how we worship it. If this is what you think about at night, what you wake up to, it's the first sign that God may have given you over to his wrath. If this is consuming you. You think about it all the time. As C.S. Lewis once said, there's two kinds of people in this world. The people who say, Lord, your will be done. And then there are the people to whom the Lord says, your will be done. Your will be done. That's fine. You want that? You can have it for the rest of your days into eternity. Second question we can ask ourselves, has my lust for that natural gift become so insatiable now that it's, it's twisted? It's more perverted. You see that in verse 25, right? Then God gave them up to a dishonorable passions. Sorry, verse 26. Cutting corners. Cutting down people to get to the top of your job. You're so obsessed now with your job that you're cutting corners, you're cutting down people. You're so obsessed with money that now you're, you're saving and you're getting more and it becomes your number one thing. You're so obsessed with other people liking you that you become this chameleon to anyone you're around. You're different around all kinds of different people because you want to be friends to every person. That is your thing, so you become this different kind of person. Asking your spouse to try things that God did not intend for sex become twisted. Or lewd stuff you talk about with so-called friends outside of marriage, and you do things and your conversation is unnaturally sexual when it's not meant to be outside of marriage. That's a sign you might be in the second stage of God's wrath. Man, that is, that is dangerous. Thirdly, you no longer think it's so wrong, so it no longer bothers you. This is when God gives you over to that debased mind. Your mind no longer filters evil. It's just normal to you. It's just not so bad anymore. It's just okay, right? Because God doesn't care. He forgives. Yet even now, even through this sermon and these words, God is trying to use this wrath to warn you. Just as He tried to warn the Israelites through Moses, no closer. You can't bear to hear directly from me. It's a problem. If any of these questions apply to you, please know that there is a tension in heaven between his holiness and his love, between justice and the relationship he wants for you. And we're going to see how that tension is solved soon, and it's glorious. What's interesting is that the more I meditate on this wilderness section after Israelites get delivered out of Egypt, the more I imagine in my mind's eye the conversation between the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, going something like this, at the aim towards help for the sinner but holiness for God, the conclusion of a conversation ends something like this. We're not yet ready to send Jesus, are we? We're not yet ready to send Jesus and his gospel. Generations need to feel the consistent and desperate weight of sin, lest they think they are different, that they are somehow can overcome this. But because we love them, we'll send Moses and the law, which will point towards Jesus and the gospel. Here's what I mean. If you ask, why didn't God then at this point, if he didn't want to consume the Israelites, just send Jesus? Right? He could have. 1200 BC, why didn't he send Jesus then if it was a problem? Here's why I think. God's people needed centuries of proof that they were no different. It would be easy to think, man, we're going to be the ones not to sin. We're going to be the ones to finally live that life that God intended. It's going to be us. We're going to be that greatest generation. We hear about it. We even sing songs about it. We're going to be that generation that does it so well. We needed the written record, the testimonies, the judgment, the various kinds of idolatry, the twisted ways of sinning to be convinced in our minds we are no different. We can try and we can try and we can try to love to God's standards, to be holy as he is holy, but we'll fail. And it was at that right time, Paul says in Romans 5, Verse 6, just at the right time that God would send Jesus. Beautiful. But before we get to Jesus, we get to the hint about Jesus in the gospel, and that is Moses and the law. So next, Moses speaks, and we try to please. Moses is the speaking go-between for God to communicate with those who he has saved. God's people get this. And so in Exodus 20 We read, right, the people were afraid and they trembled. They stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us, well listen, don't let God speak to us lest we die. So here's how this works. In Exodus 33 we see, okay, here's how it's going to work then Israelites. I'm going to go off to this tent way outside the camp because that's where God's going to be. I'm going to speak to God face to face and that's what God does. He speaks face to face with God, Moses does, as with a friend. Now the Israelites when Moses does that, they wait at their own tent and worship God. but They don't dare go out to their, that tent. The people recognize that they meet with God face-to-face. It's bye-bye face, right? It's going to be like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones style. It's going to go fast. God later affirms this asking for Moses' voice instead of God's voice was a wise request. Deuteronomy 18, 16, and 17 it can be up on the screen. Look at this. Just as you desired of the Lord... Your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you asked, let me not hear from the voice of the Lord, my God, again, directly, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, that's Moses, they are right in what they spoke. They were right to say, don't speak to us, God, directly. Use Moses. But there's one major problem with this setup, and that is Moses, he's going to die. Just like everyone else, Moses, too, is going to die. There'll be no one left to go between the people and God. So surrounding this affirmation, in the same chapter, Deuteronomy 18, God shares through Moses something else he has planned. Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then he goes through that thing. Just as you desire to the Lord not to speak to you directly. And the Lord said, that's a good idea. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words that I shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The last verse is telling. He's saying the person who won't listen to that future prophet, that's Jesus, person who won't listen to Jesus, claim, I am the way. Come to the Father through me. Yahweh will require it of him. What is it? Namely, he's going to require all the other words that Jesus lived out. He's going to require that the person do those. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't get angry, because that means you're murdering somebody. Don't lust after someone. That means you're committing adultery. You have to keep all those commandments unless you hear the message of salvation through Jesus. That is what Moses is predicting here. There will be one after me who will bring a solution to this tension. But in the meantime, Moses speaks the law. The law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, but listed in Exodus, all of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The law is the father-pleasing response that Moses speaks. The law is what every person tries to do to please God. And it's very natural, by the way. Every kid wants to please their dad, right? When you're a kid, at some point, you make it your aim to please dad. So it's dad who saves his kids from bondage, and he speaks through Moses a list that they can respond with to please him. Some people know the actual law today, summarizing the Ten Commandments, and so they try to please the Judeo-Christian God in that way. So we say, I want to I obey you, God. I want to do this. While others, Paul says in Romans 2, live according to this inner law written on their hearts and their conscience recognizing that there's some semblance of a future reward based on how they do, based on how they perform. So if I do well as a person, I'll get rewarded. If I don't, I'll be punished. The Bible says God has put that in you and every person who's made in God God's image. So you may not say, I mean, I don't know the Ten Commandments. i never even thought about God before. But you know there's party that says, well, I, man, I regret, I regret what I just did. Or you know, I, I should have done this, I could have done that. Or you make decisions based on I gotta or I better not, right? If that's you, that's the law at work in your life that God has put inside of you. Whenever someone holds up a standard and says, be like this, or follow this plan, that's just another version of the law. And the problem is all who try to follow any version of the law fail. So while Yahweh gives us a way to please him, or he gave his people a way to please him, ultimately leads to frustration and failure, which we'll talk about more next week. Thankfully, Jesus speaks a better word. Here's the last part. For those who want to hear directly from God, but you recognize you aren't right with him. For those who even this morning recognize they might be, given over to God's wrath. You recognize, man, Ryan, that's me. I barely recognize anymore. I barely feel and sense what I'm doing is the wrong thing. For those who tried to please the Father, consciously or subconsciously, by what they do, according to a law, Jesus speaks a better word, friends, a better word. Jesus', Jesus news speaks a better word than the law. Jesus' news speaks a better word than the law. When John is introducing this person of Jesus in the New Testament, He says this, John 1:17. the law was given through Moses, which we learned, right? Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Through Moses, the way to please the Father wasn't complete, was it? It wasn't fully true in the sense that no one could do it. Through Jesus, the way to please the Father is completed by way of gift because Jesus has done it for us. Anyone might have the gift, and that is good news. So through Moses, no one could do it. Through Jesus, anyone could have it. It's fulfilled. It's fully true. So grace and truth through Jesus. Trusting that Jesus has done the law freely and for you is the father-pleasing response that he requires. That's all. So you have two choices then to please Heavenly Father. Jesus believing or law keeping. Your performance or Jesus' performance. That's it. So Jesus' news speaks a better word than the law. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than wrath. That's a direct line, by the way, from Hebrews 12, 24, spoken in reference to another type of Christ whose unjust murder deserves a just punishment. It's interesting, if you guys look at the life of Moses a little more closely, you'll see two very distinct times when Moses bears the blame for God's people. Even though he didn't deserve it, Moses bears the blame for his people. The first is in Exodus 14, when Moses is blamed for the people's sin, even though he didn't complain to God. God says, why have you sinned? You did it. And Moses just receives it. The next time, he bears the blame voluntarily. He actually steps forward and says, I'll take it. It's the day after the golden calf incident. Exodus 32, I'm going to read this for you. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. In other words, make you right again with the Lord. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people sinned a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold. That's a problem, right? God is not made of gold. Now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please, Lord, blot me out of your book that you have written. I, I will take on the punishment if you will not forgive them. And we know who this sounds like, right? But what's interesting is God's presence doesn't come right then. First, it's not until Moses finishes a work, finishes a work of atonement, making up for sin. And the work is, in addition to Moses speaking the words of God, Yahweh gives Moses one grand task to oversee and carry out. It's building this massive tabernacle where Yahweh will choose to dwell with his people, this massive house, okay? At the end of Exodus, there's this amazing line. If you go back and read there, it's short, it's brief, you might overlook it. But after, God, after Moses finishes the work, it actually says, chapter 40 of Exodus, so Moses finished the work, at which point the cloud of God's presence rushes in for all the people to finally see. John 19, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, when he had done the work, he, re- he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. See, guys, Jesus finishes the work of bearing God's wrath, his just punishment, so we never have to. We never have to. He says, it is finished. And it is finished. He lived the perfect life we couldn't, died the death we deserve, so we won't have to bear the wrath of God. Great news. So every week, we are giving you another tool for the toolbox to connect to you. Wherever you turn in this Bible to the gospel of Jesus to help us see that it's all life-transformingly relevant to us. So this week's tool, this week's wherever I open my Bible is this. Ask, where does Jesus speak a better word? Ask yourself the question. When you open this, especially in the Old Testament, I'm reading this, I'm reading the prophets. Where does Jesus speak a better word? Every prophet, supremely Moses, is a type of Christ. All right, Christ means literally anointed one, doesn't it? What happened in the Old Testament, if you were a leader, you were taken aside and you were anointed with oil, set apart as a leader. Prophets were done, priests, kings, this happened to, but none of these did their job rightly. No prophet always succeeded in speaking the right words. They gave some truth, but not the whole sense. And so we read in the New Testament, long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he's spoken to us by who? His son He speaks the whole glorious, gracious truth. We've already seen this, right? Wherever we hear a prophet remind people to keep God's law, Jesus speaks a better word than the law. Wherever we see the prophets give wrath warnings or explanations for why God's punishing them, Jesus' Jesus' blood speaks a better word than wrath. When Yahweh gives potable water or water from a rock, Jesus Christ gives water that wells up to eternal life so someone will never thirst. Maybe you have sought pleasure your whole life through wild living, and you don't see any way back to God, oh, God will be pleased with you. You know what Jesus' word gives you? He speaks a better word through a prodigal son. Or maybe you think, man, I I can please God and do enough by living a right life, being super religious, do all the right things all the time. Jesus speaks a better word through an elder brother. To those wondering if any voice they hear might be a message from God, Jesus offers to be to them a good shepherd who leads them, and the sheep follow, for they know his voice. Let me close with sharing with you a profound moment in which I heard Jesus speak a better word. Uh, a relatively tuned in and hip school teacher had overheard me tell a joke to my class that was way over the line. I didn't think he was in the room. It was way over the line. And, I, and he, what he did is after class, he, he took me over to his record or LP collection if you don't know what those are, they're spinning discs about this big, all right? And you put this pin on them, and they play music. Some people think it might be magic. I don't think it is. <laughs> he pulled this album out and showed it to me, and it was one that was familiar to me. It was Guns and Roses, Appetite for Destruction. I knew this well. I had this CD, also might be unknown to you, and uh, had Sweet Child of Mine, Paradise City. I don't know if you know these, anyway. Mr. Rewald then said to me, Mr. Oschlager, you have an appetite for destruction and it will ruin you. Having warned me about the wrath to come, he offered me a solution of moderation in everything. He said, you know, the proverb says, eat only enough, honey, lest you vomit. So I took that day and I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to only say certain things in front of certain people. I'm only going to drink in moderation and in front of certain people. I'm only going to do these things in moderation. But you know what, guys? I kept failing and failing. And then Jesus spoke to me this better word. It's from John chapter 6. Listen to it. And then we're going to head directly into worship. Let's stand together. Listen to this better word that Jesus spoke. For those of us who have an appetite for destruction. And he said to him, what must we do, Jesus, to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sinned. Then they said to him, What sign do you do that we might believe you? What work do you do? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written in the book of Exodus, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you now the true bread from heaven, right to satisfy your appetite. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. A better word through knowing King Jesus. Let's sing together.